Welcome to Sundays with Montrose Bible Church. We're glad you're here to join us in a study of God's Word. Well, good morning, everyone. And as we continue to progress through our study in the book of Philippians, we find ourselves this morning in chapter 2, verse 17. And as you can hopefully recall, we spent the last two weeks looking what the Apostle Paul meant when he said to work out your salvation. We saw that God's provided the example, the instructions, the means, and the desire to do so. And we're also reminded that as we're going about this process, we must hold fast the word of life. Paul implores his friends in Philippi to do this for their sake and for his own, because for them he knows that it's the only way that they'll make it to the finish line. And for himself, he knows that it's the only way that he'll be able to glory, to boast, to be proud in the Philippians at the day of Christ. And as Paul moves along in his letter, we'll see this morning that he's continuing to flesh out this concept of what it means to work out your salvation. And he does so in a very literal manner. He lifts up three exemplary models of human flesh that have lived out this calling. Himself, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. And over the next few Sundays, we'll be examining the lives of each of these men and observing what it is that we can learn from their examples. And if you aren't already there, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, verse 17. Philippians 2, 17 through 30 reads, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore I hope to send him immediately, as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. Because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. And this morning, we're working through this text from two different angles. First, we'll be walking through all of verses 17 through 30, so we can properly get an understanding of the big picture that Paul has in mind here. We'll take notice of the natural events that are transpiring, and the reasons why Paul makes the decisions that he's making. And then, 
the majority of our study will be spent in verses 17 through 18 as we consider the exemplary model of Paul himself. And if we recall the setting of this letter, we'll remember that the Apostle Paul is once again in prison, this time most likely in Rome. And while he's unsure of what his future sentence might bring, we know from chapter 1 that he's hopeful of being released so that he may continue on for there, the Philippians' progress and joy in the faith. He's hopeful yet uncertain, but either way he's content because for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. His circumstances do not extinguish his joy because his joy is found in Christ. If he stays imprisoned, he will rejoice. If he's set free, he will rejoice. If he continues on living, he'll rejoice. And even if he's put to death, guess what he will do? Rejoice. And this is not the first time that Paul has reminded the Philippians to rejoice no matter what may come. In the opening lines of this letter, he makes sure that the Philippians don't lose heart and become distressed over his imprisonment, but instead gain courage and praise God because God providentially used the circumstances of Paul's imprisonment to further the progress of the gospel. And as we can see in any number of places throughout this short letter, Paul uses the circumstances of the Philippians' lives, his colleagues' lives, and his own life to encourage the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord always. And as we continue to progress in his epistle, it's easy for us to notice the level of intimacy that Paul has with these believers. He shares with them his physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual state. And after he's filled them in how how things are going with him, he also wants to know how things are going with them as well. We see this in verse 19. Verse 19. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I may also be encouraged when I learn of your condition. He desires to know how his friends at the church in Philippi are doing, but he obviously can't make the journey there himself because he's imprisoned. So he's hoping to send Timothy on his behalf. And he's looking to do this for several reasons. First, Timothy is by his side, so he's easily sendable. Second, Timothy would have been a familiar face to the Philippians since he was there at the founding of that church. And also, Paul has no one else that he trusts so much. And this leads us to verses 23 through 24, which say, Therefore I, Paul, wish to send Timothy immediately, as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming to you shortly. He's hoping that he can go to Philippi himself to see them in person. But if he can't, his plan is to send Timothy. But before he sends Timothy, he needs to wait and see how things go in regards to his imprisonment and future sentence. Plan A would be to go himself. Plan B is to send Timothy. Yet the unknown time restraints make it difficult to enact either of these plans. So because of this and the growing concern to strengthen and encourage the Philippians, he sends another who can be more easily dispatched. We see this in verse 25. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. 
because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. And we know from chapter 4 of this letter that the Philippians sent one of their own, Epaphroditus, to deliver a gift to Paul in Rome. And either somewhere along the journey or once this man got to Paul in Rome, he became very sick, even to the point of death. And news of his illness had made it back to Philippi. Thankfully, as we see in verse 27, Epaphroditus recovered, but being unable to simply call up, text, or email the Philippians his condition, there remains a sense of urgency to ease their distress by letting them know that Epaphroditus is indeed alive and well. So as we can see from our text, the decision was made to send Epaphroditus back to Philippi with Paul's letter in hand so that the church would be able to know of both Paul's condition and Epaphroditus's. Paul urges the church in verse 29 to receive Epaphroditus in the Lord and hold men like him in high regard. And these are the natural events that are playing out in this morning's text. But as one commentator put it, although the stated mission of these men is to bring news of Paul's trial and Epaphroditus' recovery from a near-fatal illness, Paul's implicit motive is to place into the midst of the Philippian congregation men who exemplify Christ-like humility and others-centered concern. And this is just as important for today's churches as it was for the church in the first century A.D. The church always has and always will have Christ to look back to as their ultimate example. But oftentimes his example is one we can only follow and mimic in regards to his attitude and not his actual ministry. Philippians 2.5 says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. We're undoubtedly to call, called to follow after the example of Jesus. But there are a lot of aspects of Jesus' earthly ministry that we simply have not been called to replicate. For we can't turn water into wine, we can't heal the paralytic, give sight to the blind, or freedom to the captives. Christ's mission while he was on earth was to offer himself up to bear the sins of many. Our mission is to glorify God while we pursue Christ and drive others to do the same through our lives, words, and actions. We're to have the same attitude, the same mindset that Christ Jesus had, but to walk in his actual footsteps would at times be pointless at best or inappropriate at worst. But the Bible does give us many other templates and figures that we can look up to and follow after. The Apostle Paul gives us three in this passage, himself, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. And this morning we'll be looking to Paul's example as he rejoices in and through sacrifice. And as we examine the life of Paul, we must first take note that he's not pointing to himself because he believes himself to be the architect, pioneer, or author of this way. No, what he's after is the same thing we see from him in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, where he says, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. He's seeking and striving to pattern his life after that of Christ. And he's working at this with the help of God's energy and the Spirit's leading. And while he's doing this, Paul's life is continually being refined 
and molded into the image of Christ. And as he pursues to pattern himself after Christ, his life can also become a pattern for others to follow. He doesn't pour his life out in the same way that Jesus did on the cross, but nonetheless he knows that he's still called to pour his life out for the interests of others, just as Jesus did. And this is what we see in Paul. He's willing to pour himself out. He's willing to sacrifice. He's willing to humbly follow after the example of his Savior, Jesus Christ. And he does all of it with rejoicing. Whatever may come, Paul is determined to rejoice and share his joy with them all. Take another look at verses 17 through 18. Philippians two seventeen through 18. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. And if we recall Paul's words in verse 20 of chapter 1, then we'll remember that the desire of Paul's heart is to exalt Christ no matter what circumstance he finds himself in. And we see here in these verses that he has the opportunity to exalt Christ by pouring himself out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of another's faith. And this phrase, being poured out as a drink offering, it sounds like a very noble, a very Christian thing to do just from the wording of it, even though we probably don't have the faintest idea of what it actually means. And while it is a good, noble, even Christian thing to do, it's also quite helpful to actually understand what Paul is referring to here. For this is something that both the Jews and the pagans of Paul's day would have had a very good understanding of. But I think it's safe to say that this concept of pouring one's life out as a drink offering is one that we don't talk about that often in our modern day lives. And we see this offering frequently used and referred to in the Old Testament. In Genesis 35, Jacob poured a drink offering on the memorial pillar that he set up in Bethel. We see the Lord giving Moses instructions at Mount Sinai on how to make bowls which would be used in the tabernacle for the pouring out of the drink offering. We find instructions on the appropriate occasions and quantities of its usage in Numbers and Leviticus. We can read of individuals and kings instituting the sacrifice to the Lord. And sadly, we also see pagans and idolaters offering up drink offerings to foreign gods in Jeremiah and other places in Scripture. And while these are only a few passages that speak of the drink offering, they illustrate its use, establishment, and instructions. But what is the meaning behind it and its significance? And John MacArthur answers this question well in one of his sermons on Philippians 2. He says this, In the ancient world of sacrifice, this is typically what would happen. After the animal on the altar had been killed and was being burned up, there was a final sort of capper, a final topping off of that sacrifice, where the offerer came and took wine. Sometimes they used water. Occasionally we even have the illustration of them using honey, but predominantly wine. And pouring wine either on the ground, in front of the altar, or on top of the burning sacrifice, in which case it would vaporize immediately into steam, and go into the air, symbolizing the rising of that sacrifice into the nostrils of the deity for whom it was being offered. John MacArthur continues by saying, So Paul says, 
I am now offering my life as this final topping off libation or drink offering upon another sacrifice. This is the completion of this full sacrifice. And as we know, whether it be from this study or elsewhere in Scripture, Paul lays it all out on the line when it comes to serving Christ. In the past, he's poured himself out for the sake of the gospel. He's continuing to do so in the present, and he will continue to do so in the future. Whether the means would be continued life or even through continued death, he will pour himself out. And he doesn't do so begrudgingly or because someone has a gun pointed up against his head, forcing him in, him into it. No, he does so willingly and joyfully. And he does this because he has his eyes fixed on the right target. His heart is aimed at the proper goal. The purpose of his life and actions are to see God glorified, not himself. We see Paul rejoicing in and through sacrifice because he knows that true joy and sacrifice are not self-centered, but rather God-centered. He'll pour himself out in his living or in his dying for the sake of others. And he isn't endeavoring to be put on center stage, noticed, or even praised for his sacrifice. No, despite all he has done, he views himself as being the drink offering poured on top of the Philippians' greater sacrifice and service of faith. He doesn't have the desire or need to be praised for his offering. He isn't looking to receive accolades for being the most faithful person in his ministry. He's content with playing the background, even if that means he barely gets noticed or doesn't even get noticed at all. He's okay with this because he realizes, as we all should, that everything one does should point to Christ, not themselves. And what a simple yet deeply impactful and profound truth we see here in Paul. For what a difference this would make in our ministries and in our day-to-day lives if the sole desire of our hearts was to actually see Christ high and lifted up. Disregarding what it would cost or possibly do to our image and our egos, not desiring any of the praise because we sincerely don't want it. Realizing that it all belongs to God, so we direct it all back to him, and reflect any that we might receive back to him as well. It put an end to any bickering, backbiting, and complaining, because each of us would be able to be content in whatever position God has placed us in within his body. If God has granted that you be his hands, then be the best hands that you can be. If his feet, the best feet. If the eyes, the best eyes. If the mouth, the best mouth. And if we get this right, then it wouldn't matter to any of us where God has put us, or what he has gifted us with, because we would each be working together for the express purpose of glorifying him. There'd be no abuse, no power struggle, no belittling, because none of the focus would be placed on glorifying ourselves, but rather, all of it would be directed to God, as it should be. And this is the type of example each of us should seek to become, and it's an example that's desperately needed within the church. Our church today and the church of Paul's day as well. And we see here in this text that Paul models it wonderfully. Because surely if someone's sacrifice was to be noticed and mentioned, it would have been Paul's, not the Philippians. He had done so much more and suffered so much more, so some of the praise should have been his, right? For he was especially appointed as an apostle to the Gentiles, 
his encounter with the risen Christ at his conversion definitely had some details that would outshine one's normal personal testimony. And on top of all of these things, he's the author behind almost half of the books in the New Testament. It seems that if anyone should get a hall pass on being able to receive some praise in regards to their ministry, it should be Paul. But he will have none of it. All glory goes back to God, and as God's bondservant, he is content to go about his master's bidding, whatever that may be. Even if it means that he is to spill himself out as a drink offering on top of the sacrifice and service of another's faith. And this brings us to the second lesson that we can learn from Paul here in this passage. He rejoices in and through sacrifice because he knows that true joy and sacrifice are not only to be God-centered rather than self-centered, but also because he knows that they are to be spilled out. Take another look at verse 17. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. In these words, I am being poured out as a drink offering that we see in our English text are all derived from a singular Greek verb, spendo, which means to pour out as a libation, to figuratively devote one's life or blood as a sacrifice, to be ready to be offered, or to spend. And properly understanding this helps us to see what Paul's after here in relation to his sacrifice and service to the Lord. We can clearly see that Paul isn't calculating and measuring what he can afford to give of himself. He isn't carrying around a dropper, carefully extracting a tiny amount of his time, energy, or resources to be given back to the Lord. Yeah, thanks, Lord, for all you've given me. Now, let me get back to you what I've determined you're worth. One tiny little drop. And to see this imagery seems absurd. Yet, if we're truly honest with ourselves, isn't this how we give back to the Lord at times, or maybe even every time? The question is, am I, are you, willing to joyfully sacrifice and pour yourself out for the sake of others and for the sake of the gospel? Or have we, myself included at times, become too wrapped up in ourselves? We say, yeah, Lord, I know that I'm called to share the joy that I found in you, just not to those people over there, because I determined in my own mind that they're not worthy of receiving it. And in so doing, we forget who we were and where we were at when Christ found us, and we overlook the fact that we too were not worthy to receive him, his salvation, or the joy that comes from his salvation. Or we say, I know that I'm called to sacrifice, Lord, but how much of myself am I supposed to give? Because giving it all was a lot more than I was bargaining for. And if we're honest with ourselves, friends, we probably find ourselves in this place far too often, unwilling to sacrifice ourselves for the sake of the gospel or for the sake of others. And how do we get past this and get back to where we're supposed to be? Time and time again, Paul is driving us there. Look to and follow the example set by Jesus, he says. Fuel yourselves up on his power 
Never take your eyes off of him. In church, when we find ourselves asking how much sacrifice is enough sacrifice or how much service is too much service, I can think of only two reasons why one would do this. Either because we have disregarded or forgotten the sacrifice that Christ Jesus has made on our behalf or because we never fully appreciated it in the first place. And we think to ourselves, that's too extreme. That's too much. So we hold back. And friends, just imagine where all of us would be, where the world would be, if Christ Jesus held himself back. Sorry, humanity, I had it in mind to come down to earth and provide the one and only means of redemption. But when I crunched the numbers, it just didn't work in my favor. It's really going to mess with my schedule. It was going to affect my leisure time and drain down my accounts. So I just decided to stay here in heaven because, as you can only imagine, and now we'll actually never get the opportunity of finding out, it's much more comfortable up here. (laughs) No. Thank God, no. Jesus spilled himself out. We see this in Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore, I, God, will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured himself out unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Thank God that he's not selfish in the same ways that we are. For if he was, there'd be no hope, there'd be no good news, there would be no salvation. God did not greedily hold back that which was rightfully his, but instead freely gave. He gave us his son, and the son did not hold himself back either. Jesus laid down his life, which was his, to rightfully give. We see this in John ten eighteen, when Jesus is speaking of laying down his own life. He says, No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. And hear this, church. If Christ did not hold back that which was his to rightfully give, how dare we hold back that which we have no right to even possess? And this is true of our very lives, and even more so of the new life that we have in Christ. For before each of us took our first breath, In our sin, we had already forfeited our right to keep on living. And we hold on to things so tightly, forgetting that we own nothing. Everything we have is given from God, and one day, it will all be given back to him. All of our possessions and our very lives, they all belong to him. Yet still we refuse to give him what is rightfully his, or we ration out what we give back to him. And let us, right here, right now, put a stop to this madness in our own lives and in our midst. Christ emptied himself. He poured himself out for the sake of others, for your sake, for my sake. And it's time, church, that each of us do the same for his sake as well. Stop trying to measure, calculate, or crunch the numbers on what you can afford to give him. For the only offering that he will accept is your whole life. And if you're unwilling to give that to him, then sadly you'll find out in the hard way the cost for holding on to your own life will be much greater than what it costs to abandon it. Christ poured himself out for you, 
So why won't you pour yourself out to him? And this is what we see from Paul. He knows that Christ Jesus poured himself out. So he follows the example of Christ and pours himself out as well. And what a tremendous impact this had on Paul's life. We can see that he rejoices in and through sacrifice because he knows that true joy and sacrifice are not self-centered, but God-centered. He knows that he isn't supposed to bury these things inside of himself, but instead spill them out. And as we continue to move along in our text, we see that he also knows they are to be shared. Verses 17 through 18. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Paul sees his work, his sacrifice, as being the topper placed upon the larger sacrifice in service of the Philippians' faith. And as we know, Paul's service for Christ wouldn't be hashtagged as all butterflies and rainbows, nothing but smiles with no adversity. No, there was pain, there was struggle, there was persecution, but through it all, he's still able to have joy because of his Savior. And he uses this letter to share the past and present happenings of his life to encourage this body of believers in Philippi to hold on to their joy. He urges them to do so because he knows that they're facing persecution and that more persecution is going to be headed their way. And he encourages them and shows them by means of his own life that if their joy is truly found in Christ, then nothing can compromise it, not persecution or even death itself. And he knows this for himself, but he's not content with keeping it to himself because he realizes that others can benefit from his struggles. Their faith can be advanced by hearing of the dark places that he had to walk through, all the while knowing that he was never alone. God was with him through the struggle, through the persecution, and through the pain. And these are lessons he learned, yet others can benefit from them and be encouraged not to lose heart and joyfully walk through their own struggles. And he shares with the Philippians that he still rejoices because this joy cannot be taken from him, cannot be pried out of his hands, beaten out of his back, or plucked from his heart. It doesn't remain there merely in spite of difficult times, but in the midst of or even because of difficult times. His joy is found in Christ, and he's absolutely convinced that nothing can separate him from the love of Jesus Christ, his Savior. He's found his treasure buried in the field. His hand has laid hold of the pearl of great price, and he's never letting go. And he doesn't want to keep it a secret or bury it deep within himself for no one else to see. So he opens himself up and shares. He shares with them about his struggles, and he shares with them that through it all, that he still rejoiced and found joy in the Lord. And so too can they. And he urges them to do so, to rejoice in the same way he rejoices, no matter what may come. And just as he didn't keep his joy locked up inside of himself, but shared it with them, they too are to share their joy with him. And as the Philippians are facing their own struggles, what an amazing encouragement Paul's letter must have provided upon receiving it. For if he, through Christ, could joyfully withstand all that was thrown at them, 
then they too, through Christ, could joyfully persevere. How thankful that they must have been that he was willing to open himself up and share so that they too could share in his joy. And as we sit here 2,000 years removed, the church is still being challenged by Paul's example to rejoice in the Lord always. But in order for this to happen, he first had to share. He had to open up the doors of his life and let other people inside. And as we look to the example set by him, we must ask ourselves, are we willing to do the same? Will you let others in on what God has been teaching you and walking you through so that you might be able to share your joy with others and they too with you? Not doing so in order to become the latest gossip or receive a new piece of news about someone else. For we should be focusing on the building up of Christ and his church rather than focused on undermining it and tearing it down. No, but sharing with others so that they can be encouraged by God's faithfulness in your own life through the good and bad times and so that we can become a church that is ever rejoicing, not because the circumstances in our life are always perfect, but because our Savior always is. And this brings us to our last point this morning, which lies in and behind all the other lessons that we can learn from Paul. We see in this morning's text and all throughout the letter of Philippians, to the Philippians, that the only reason that Paul is able to sacrifice and give so much of himself and rejoice through it all is because his sacrifice and his joy have their source in Christ. And the same is true for all of us today. The only true source of, that we can go to to find joy is the Lord. This is equally true in the highs and lows of life. When life is going swell, the only true source of joy is the Lord. When life isn't going as you expected it to go, the only true source of joy is the Lord. And our rejoicing in our sacrifice won't be God-centered if it isn't sourced in Christ. We'll be unable to spill out ourselves or our joy for others if it's not sourced in Christ. And we'll be incapable of sharing our joy if they're not sourced in Christ, for you cannot share what you don't already have. And when we look to Paul's example, oftentimes we think that it's one that's almost impossible to follow. We reason to ourselves that no human could have gone through all that he did, all the while being joyful and coming out on the other end rejoicing. There's no way that he did all of that by himself. He must have had some supernatural strength within him empowering him along the way. Well, he didn't do it all by himself, and there indeed was a supernatural strength given to him, and its source lay in none other than Jesus Christ. And if we remember back to the first introduction the Bible gives us of Saul of Tarsus, we can appreciate how great of a change that Jesus Christ can bring about in a redeemed soul. Our first introduction to this man was at the stoning of Stephen, the angry mob that stoned him to death laid their coats at Paul's, Saul's feet and were told that he was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. And the next time that we see Saul, he's on his way to Damascus to persecute the church. And on his way there, he encounters the living Christ. And what a magnificent transformation we see in this man, these many years removed from God's intervening hand. 
for he was on his way to persecute the church, and now he's rejoicing in the fact that he's considered worthy to be persecuted for the church. And this is not of his own doing. It's a testament of Christ working in him. And so often we forget that. We look to these exemplary men and women of faith because we're not to look to these exemplary men and women of faith because of their own greatness, but because of the greatness of the one working in them and shining forth through their lives. And too often we also forget how these exemplary models got to where they were at. It wasn't over the span of a night, a month, or even a year. The only one, the only way one gets closer to Christ and further away from sin is by taking one step at a time. Each and every day, each and every moment, being determined to live for him, to put him first, and seek after his kingdom and his righteousness. And as we draw a close to this morning's text, we need to be thanking God that he's placed exemplary models of faith within his word, throughout history, and even here in our congregation so that others may look to them and have a better idea of what it looks like to live for Christ. And just as God used someone in your own life to help challenge you and draw you closer to himself, pray that you too may become that person in someone else's life as you cling to the sun and he shines forth through you. Not so that you can receive the praise, but so that others may join with you as you rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and just hopefully we can look back and once again see the work that you've done in our lives, Lord. Uh, just look to the past and see who we were and where we were headed before you found us and hopefully see progress over uh, months, years, even decades, Lord, to where you brought us today. Remember, that's a testament to you uh, and your working in us, the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, and Jesus Christ in our lives, and that we would realize that, remember it, Lord, look back to the example of your Son, look to the example of others that have modeled his example, and just move forward as a church that glorifies you and shines your light in this darkened world. Thank you for who you are and all you've done. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We trust you were challenged by the word of the Lord and invite you to join us again. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry in Montrose, come worship with us at 930 every Sunday along Lake Avenue.